0: In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I discuss a SaaS pricing conundrum, subdomains, building an affordable MVP, and more listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 407. Welcome to Startups to the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products, whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. So where are this week, sir?
1: Well, you remember a few weeks ago when I said I uh, had w- gone on to meetup.com and had started a Dungeons & Dragons group and gotten a couple of people together and started uh, playing a campaign? Indeed. So... Because I'm, you know, obviously signed up for it and have a paid account now, they've started emailing me about various groups like, hey, you might be interested in this. And I was told that I should join the Massachusetts Cannabis Marketing and Sales Group.
0: You totally should. It's a growth market, man. Yeah. (laughs) Is Is it legal in Massachusetts?
1: It is. Okay. Although I don't think anybody is licensed to actually sell it yet. So that, that happened like two years ago. They said yes, this is now legal in Massachusetts for recreational use, but they still had to go through like all these regulatory hurdles and people had to get certified and all this other stuff. And they're like, Yes, you can use it recreationally, but nobody can sell it to you. So it was yeah. that that was kind of the situation for a couple of years. I think that they're supposedly like sometime this summer starting to do that, but I don't know. Maybe the deadlines have already passed. I don't know. (laughs)
0: Yeah, Yeah, because I was back in California, I think it was when I was at Saster, so it was like February, March of this year, and it's it's legal there, and it's been medically legal for years, so they already had the dispensaries, and... They legalized, it, and I think it was maybe less than a year later, they were allowed to you know, sell it for recreation use. And every street corner I was on in San Francisco, I was, I was walking around at night with some friends from the conference, coworkers, and we could, there was a lot of, of smoke, of pot smoke that you could, you could smell. And it was like, oh, yeah. I've, and I, of course, I always look around like, oh, man, they can't be doing that, right? It's just this this sense you get when you smell that. But it's like, no, eh, it's just legal, and you can do it on the corner. It's such a trip. So that's a trip. It's going to be weird to get used to. I mean, the way it's going, right, it's going to be legal in all 50 states eventually. So it'll be an interesting thing to uh, to adjust to.
1: Yeah, yeah, it'll definitely be interesting. But I just found it funny that they're like, oh, you should join this group. (laughs)
0: Totally. They know who you are, Mike, deep down.
1: I guess. Maybe. I don't know. How about you? I've been
0: uh, kind of doing some smart home stuff, which is something I've been interested in for years. But since we had a rental for the past couple of years, obviously wasn't going to put a bunch of stuff in a rental. So obviously, I know I have several Alexas, um oops i just activated
1: <laughs> we should leave this in this is good radio <laughs> yeah I mean, we have several echoes
0: in the house i need to not say alexa and i'm enjoying them and i'm enjoying that you can use them as intercoms right because our house is like it has a lot of stairs there's like three or four stories depending on how you count so i
1: found out about that the other day like that you you could use it as yeah, intercom that. i didn't know that you could do that so you can just like yeah. drop into some to like some other room in the house although i was told there's a not a security loophole or something like that but like something a associated with it where you have to disable it by default otherwise like if somebody in your contact list they know you have one they can kind of like drop into your living room and just like talk to you through the intercom i think over the internet and i didn't know that interesting uh, yeah, it doesn't sound good. <laughs> good. Yeah.
0: I enjoy doing it most from the, uh, the Echo app on my phone. You can just click a couple times and then boom, you're just speaking out of one of the, the Amazon Echoes. And so our kid's playroom is way downstairs and it's easier than running down and telling them dinner's ready. It's pretty nice. So I've definitely bought into the, the Echo ecosystem and I like the direction that's going. And I got a Nest for the first time. I tried to install a Nest at my old, our old house, but it wasn't compatible and so I have a Nest here and I can now control that, of course, with the app and it's smart thermostat and that's fun. And you can even tell the Echo to to adjust the temperatures, I believe. I haven't activated that yet. And finally, so we move into this house. It's in the Midwest. It was built right around 2000 and they wired the whole thing for in-home speakers. So there's speakers in almost every room and there's these big central places where he had like receiver and a tuner and, you know, a CD player and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, I mean, that was, you know, in the 90s, that's what I would have done, right? When in college, I would lug like big speakers from dorm room to dorm room as I moved around or apartment to apartment. And you had your receiver and you had your amp and all that stuff. Now I went online, I'm like, it's got to be an easier way here. And I want to be able to stream everything. So I researched it. And of course, Sonos is the leader in that space. And so while I don't love how proprietary Sonos is, even down to the fact that I can't just I kind of just want to stream from Spotify through my Sonos, but I believe you have to use the Sonos app and you like OAuth it into your Spotify account. Like, I don't want to use the Sonos app, you know? I know, I know. I need to, I need to double check that because they may have opened it up. But last time I looked, you weren't able to just kind of just airplay it, right? The equivalent of that through the, through the Sonos thing. But anyways, they have this thing called Sonos Connect AMP and the AMP part means it has an amp in it that you can connect to speakers and so I just got one just as an experiment and I put it on the the first floor and sure enough it takes the place of all this equipment he had and just the four speaker wires go in the back and there's volume knobs on every wall in in the house and so I have like this in-home which I wasn't even I was going to bail on it all together and just not do it but sure it's like "No, no no if we have people over there'll be multiple because you can do multiple floors and there's all this stuff so all that to say I've reluctantly implemented Sonos in the smart home thing, but man it's cool and and you can tell your echo to start this on Spotify on the Sonos and it'll do it, and you go to the wall and turn it up i it's it's kind of magical man it's pretty interesting feels like we kind of live in the future
1: that's pretty cool I mean it's um I I see all these things. Like I bought a new amplifier maybe two or three years ago because my old one was like twelve, fifteen years old. And actually, I think, yeah, it was more than that. <laughs> it was probably close to twenty. I mean, it still worked great. It's just it didn't have any of the connections. Like it didn't have an HDMI connection. So it still had all the, like the component outputs and or inputs and everything else. So like I couldn't hook it up to like any new equipment that I had, like a Blu-ray player and stuff like that. So I was like, all right, fine. And I broke down and I bought a new amp and I was looking at all the different options and it seemed to me like a lot of that type of equipment is very much like car technology where they'll build something into it like Spotify or something like that. And it's obsolete. Like, almost the second you buy it, like, you know, it's, it's just not even terribly useful. So it kind of sucks that like, it feels like that type of technology is still on that trend where, you know, everything's proprietary and it's so hard to connect stuff. And it's just, you know, and it's, it's expensive too, but at the same time, it doesn't really wear out. Like I've still got speakers that are almost 20 years old and they're still in great working condition. So like, I don't really have any need to buy new ones, but except for the fact that like if something breaks, that's it.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I agree. It does. I was concerned when I bought the Sonos. I had to research it because I'm like, do they even support like speaker like speaker outputs anymore? Is it going to support these? There's exterior speakers in the patio. Is it going to drive those? Is it going to connect all this stuff? And sure enough, on the back, it looked like it had the right ports and it, it wound up doing it. It's called, they're called banana clips. So I agree. Trying to interface like this newfangled technology with, stuff that has existed for, you know, 30, 40 years, maybe even longer. I remember twisting speaker wires together. I had four speakers in my dorm room. So it was, it wasn't, certainly wasn't quadraphonic. It was just stereo, but I would twist them together and run them into the amp and do all the stuff. And that technology is now, you know, having to interface with, like you said, this, this Spotify stuff. So I did, I did evaluate not doing Sonos. I mean, there are obviously other brands that have like streaming music devices that have amps built in, but they just all seem, like you said, kind of bolted on, you know, and antiquated and, um, I don't know it's interesting to see how this is going to shake out i'm interested to see how it's going to shake out over the next few years i do hope that you know obviously i'm investing in ecosystems now right it's like i'm in on the alexa ecosystem now and i'm in obviously now on the sonos a little bit and i think i'm probably gonna have to get at least one more perhaps too because there's different zones and stuff but i'm trying to pick market leaders because i don't want to buy the betamax you know and have it have suddenly have to bail on it because they just kill the line or whatever
1: well that just means you have to find the one that is selling porn with it so you know (laughs) that's yeah, that that'll totally
0: be the winner. I'll yeah. <laughs> do. It. And I do think I might need to stand corrected because I opened Spotify while we were talking and it does look like I can just connect to the Sonos downstairs and just kind of stream it through there instead of using their app. So I'll test that later to to prove it out, but I know for a while they didn't do that, so they must they if if it does it now, they must have added it in the past, whatever, 6 months or something.
1: Yeah. I mean, it seems to me like you almost just want like for for that type of technology, anything that comes to streaming, you just want something where you can connect to it with Bluetooth or something like that, or with even just a cable. And then from there, it's just like it acts as a dummy piece of equipment that just does its thing. And it's that's what its sole purpose is. And then you plug other stuff into it. It seems like like most people would really would just want to do that. I mean, my wife used to work at Electronic House, and they had all these like high-end stereo systems going up to like a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand $150,000. And don't get me wrong, they were beautiful, but the reality is like you're going to spend that much money on a a stereo system for some downstairs place. I mean, I, their, their target market was people who had nothing better to do with their money. So sure, that kind of makes sense, but I think for the average user, it just doesn't matter that much.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Like you said, I wouldn't want to use a cable because the Sonos is like in a cabinet set away, but Bluetooth or I believe it's just via Wi-Fi, right? It actually has its own it, – because it connects to Wi-Fi obviously and it has its own you know, kind of identity and once I OAuth it, it connects over that. So I'm not Bluetooth connected to Sonos at all. It just no, – the phone just knows where it is. Yeah. So with that, should we do a whole episode on... on I was going to gonna say, we
1: could, well, poll, we could talk about all the different problems of those, too. I mean, there's... What was it? It was some kid's device that was out there that connected into the Wi-Fi, but it also would record pretty much anything, and it would send it back to the servers of the company that made it, and it wasn't encrypted, and it was using it to like do voice recognition, so that they were basically collecting voice data from kids. It was just like, oh boy, that's not good. And it's all on, not encrypted either, so... Yeah, there's a big problem. Yeah,
0: that's the thing, too. I mean, you hear the IoT is the term for this, right? Internet of Things, everything's going to be on the internet at some point, is what they're saying. And the IoT devices are much like a Nest and a Sonos, and even I don't know, there's what like smart toasters and smart microwaves and smart fridges and all this stuff that's supposedly coming. That stuff is said to be like a hacker's dream, right? Most of it's super insecure. Some of it, you know, if it doesn't get patched, then it's easy to hack. Even a lot of it, that is patched is, is easy to hack into. So they're saying that's the coming wave of hacks. That's going to be the zombie nets of the future. Because, you know, that's how folks do DDoSes, right? As they go out and they take control of a bunch of old PCs that are unpatched. And then they do, you know, attacks, distributed denial of service from all those things. And they're saying that the Internet of Things is going to be tenfold or a hundredfold the number of devices. And so it's going to have that much more power.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I I shudder for the people who have to deal with those types of problems. Seriously.
0: Yep. Cool. So let's dive in. We have some listener questions. We have some comments on some prior episodes. Our first comment is on episode 403, which was titled, Should You Love What You're Working On? And it's from Martin. And he says, Hi, Robin, Mike. And he just came to com and entered a comment at the bottom of episode 403's blog post. He said, hi, Robin, Mike. Thanks for another great episode. When you guys talked about love versus opportunity, I was reminded of the idea that it can take hard work to cultivate a passion. If I remember correctly, Cal Newport talks about this idea in one of his books. I don't know about you guys, but I've noticed that there are a lot of things where you need to put in the work first before you start to enjoy them. I'm currently working as a software consultant, and I remember that the reason I picked up programming in the first place was because as a kid, I was into video games. Now, many years later, I really enjoyed developing software, often more than playing games. I think that's true of many things. For example, when you're just starting with any kind of sport and you suck at it, it's often not that great. But once you put some effort into it and you start to improve, you suddenly get why people enjoy doing it. And I think Martin has a good point. Thanks for posting, Martin. I, this is how I felt about playing music, playing the guitar. You know, when it first started, it was really hard. And then definitely the better you get or the better I got, the more I wanted to play my guitar. What do you think about
1: this? I think that I remember reading about this. I think that Josh Kaufman wrote a book about learning different things. And I'm pretty sure he had a graph in there that kind of showed that like there's a a skill level versus like uh, enjoyment. And when you first start doing something new, you suck at it, which is to be expected, but you don't enjoy it at all. And then once you get a little bit skilled at it, then you really start to enjoy it because you kind of feel like you know what you're doing. So you're kind of on the cusp of always learning this new stuff, but you're also – enjoying the journey and then once you get much more advanced then it's about like putting in the time and effort to practice and get the muscle memory or the mental connections made so you don't really have to think about it when you're doing it and pretty sure it was josh's book that and i can't remember the name of the book off the top of my head but i think that that was in there
0: it's called the first 20 hours how to learn anything fast
1: yes that was it yep but it was, it's a fascinating read too. So if you are interested in learning new things and the process of learning new things, I would definitely recommend picking up that book and checking it out. Cause he goes through several different things that he learned, like the ukulele and sailboarding and a couple of other things. And it's just fascinating how he learned about how to learn stuff. I always had a problem with that when I was in college. Like when I got to college, I just, I, all through high school, I'd relied on like my natural ability to just remember things and pay attention in class and then do well on tests. And when I got to college, like how have to do the homework. And that was always a problem for me in college, but it kind of worked itself out eventually, but it took years for that to happen.
0: Yep. For sure. I felt the same thing. So the first 20 hours by Josh Kaufman, it's also on Audible, which is, I believe how I read that book. So thanks for the comment, Martin. Our first question of the day is from Michael Needle. He's from alltheguides.com. He says, Mike and Rob, first, thanks for all you do. I previously called in about building a marketplace, alltheguides.com, to connect adventure travelers and guides. I'm close to finishing the platform, and I took your advice on building one segment first. I went with guides to have providers ready when clients come, which is the way I th- believe we, rec- we should have recommended that you do it. We, it's a two-sided marketplace. And we said, when you start with two-sided marketplace, you have to get that, that one side done first. So back to email. Now, ahead of the platform launch, I want to make sure I can bring the clients to the site, the customers, the consumers. So I thought I'd follow your advice by starting an informative blog in order to get emails. Adventure, travel, ideas, I think is, is the idea of the blog. Here's the question. I already have a landing page up for my platform. I assume it would be better to have the lead gen on a different domain as opposed to a subdomain. I just assume that subdomains will be less likely to draw initial visitors. Am I wrong on this? Or if I'm right and I should go with a different domain, what is the best way to nudge my list towards the platform once it's launched? Thanks again, guys. You provide invaluable advice and inspiration. What do you think, Mike?
1: I think that there's a natural inclination to believe that a a subdomain is going to be like you should put your landing pages and stuff like that on some sort of a subdomain and that's how you're driving traffic to them. But the reality, I think, is that when if you're doing like tour guides in a marketplace like this, I don't think people necessarily care about the subdomain. I think what really comes into it with the subdomain is that, you know, you're trying to establish like new website according to Google and do all the SEO and the site ranking and get that up based on how Google looks at it. When you could instead focus that energy on like a subdirectory in your main domain and use that to essentially focus your efforts and increase the authority of that domain, versus trying to do it with a, with one subdomain and then another. That's probably the approach that I would go with. The examples, or I guess, there's a few different examples I would point to, like Craigslist and Angie's List and Reddit. Like Reddit's got all those different like subreddits and stuff in it, but they're all under aren't most of them in different subdirectories? Yeah, Reddit. Maybe that's yep. a... it's Reddit.com slash r slash whatever, right? <laughs> slash startups or whatever. Right. And that's, that's not necessarily a two-sided market, but like Craigslist is. And like based on the location, they will have subdirectories, which are a geographic location. But I wouldn't worry too much about the subdirectories at the moment. And, and maybe it, I guess well, I'm, I'm curious to know whether or not you're trying to use those subdomains as like the location, like city name or something like that. Maybe it would make more sense in that case. But at the same time, you could also just use it like as a different subdirectory as well. And you'll benefit for the, the site authority through that.
0: That's the thing. And now Google has come out and said, oh, subdomain, subdirectory, there's no difference. I still think there's some difference. I, st- I still believe deep down that like subdirectory is better for SEO. So I, I do like your point there. I think if you are going to start a blog... I would try to do it in a subdomain if possible. It's not always possible to do that. You might need to reverse proxy and do some things if you're running WordPress because you don't tend to want to run WordPress on a on a production app server, right? And not when I say don't tend to want to, I mean don't do it. It's There's just too many security holes. So you're going to want to host it somewhere. I'd go with somebody like WP Engine or pagely or whatever so if you can do a subdirectory and i think i may have misspoke earlier and said subdomain but what i meant was subdirectory if you can do a subdirectory that's what i would do i don't think this matters actually that much i don't i wouldn't use a different domain for the legion i would probably lean towards subdirectory and if you need to use subdomain but it i don't know it's just apples and oranges it's just small stuff you know the, if you're gonna drive, drive ads to it it doesn't matter right Nobody cares would well, they just click on the ad and they, and they go see it if you're going to try for SEO, then, like Mike and I were saying, I would lean towards subdirectory if possible. I think it's pretty clean, but in, in all cases, i don't know that it matters that much
1: yeah i mean the the one really nice thing about having everything underneath the same domain and you're not dealing with subdomains is redirecting people back and forth and then also dealing with the fact that you're like any sort of tracking analytics where you're trying to track like did somebody hit this subdomain and then this other subdomain like and then you've got cookies back and forth between them and it with marketing tools it becomes an absolute nightmare you're much better off just having it all on one domain and then you don't have to worry about that because the cookies are going to be able to work all on that domain between the different directories versus like a google analytics tracking code something as simple as that is going to be an absolute nightmare to work across multiple domains
0: Yeah. And it's possible. You just got to know how to do it. It's, it's not out of the box trivial. And so yeah, sharing cookies is a pain. And then you'll get the, Hey, this person came from one of your domains to the other and they show up as a new visitor. Right. And so your uniques get, it's not ideal. So anyways, I hope, I hope that helps. Our next question is from longtime listeners and, and friends of ours, folks that we've known that have come to MicroConf's Dan Taylor and Simon Payne. And Dan Taylor runs appsevents.com which is an, is an events company that runs more than 300 annual events. And then Simon Payne was the co-founder of Leadpages, and he lives in, they both live in Prague, actually, in Czech Republic. And Simon is now on, always working on an app with, with Dan Taylor, and, and Simon has also launched a WordPress plugin called Convert Player, uh, that's pretty cool. So anyways, they wrote in, they said, hi, Robin and Mike, two long-time listeners here, Dan and Simon. We've developed and released a SaaS app called Events Frame. So it's eventsframe.com, a ticketing and attendee management system with fixed low monthly pricing for unlimited events and unlimited attendees. We have moved all of my company, Apps Events, 300 annual events, more than 300 annual events to this and done a full public launch last month. We already have paid signups from our listings on sites like Capterra, some content marketing, and some basic Facebook ads, which have converted to some paying customers, which is a good sign. We're doing an AppSumo launch in a couple weeks to get a bunch of users on the system, which is taking a lot of our focus. But we're planning for how we grow this long term as Simon and I are focusing all our time on this project. So my question is on pricing. As you know, systems like Eventbrite take a percentage of ticket price, and most systems follow a similar model. With Apps Events, I was spending thousands of dollars a year on Eventbrite fees. So we want to go for a fixed price for unlimited events and attendees. Our initial idea is $97 a month. Now, the issue with this is that people running one or several small events might prefer a percentage of ticket price, as there is no upfront cost. And on the other end, large event producers would pay a lot more than $97 a month. Or I think he's saying they should pay a lot more than that because they're getting more value. We guess some pricing tiers could be good, but any ideas to help our thought process would be greatly appreciated. All the best, Dan and Simon.
1: What do you think? So this is something that I actually looked into pretty heavily and struggled with several years ago. So back when I was running Audit Shark, one of the ideas that I had come up with was, you know, ironically, BlueTick, because I was doing a lot of outreach to people and I just needed to follow up with them and keep on them. But also, like as a side note, like I was also helping out on the sponsorship side for MicroConf. And for that particular problem, I found that I had to do the same thing. So I said, oh, well, if I had this product or tool in place that would allow me to do that outreach as a, as an event organizer, that would help me out a lot. And I looked around a bunch of different things, didn't really work very well for what my use case was. And I said, well, you know, could I build this? Is it something that, you know, I could basically move away from Audit Shark? Cause at the time it, it wasn't really on the, on the best path. And I recognized that at the time. And so anyway, I, I looked into specifics of whether or not I could target event organizers with that. And what I realized was that there's a wide range of types of event organizer some of them like that's all they do they organize events like the apps events company and so they will organize hundreds of events every single year and then there's ones like microconf where we do it a couple of times a year and that's it so for ones like that like a monthly pricing model really doesn't work well because of the fact that you're only running a couple of events if you're doing it on a regular basis sure it, it makes a lot more sense but as you pointed out it makes a lot more sense to just do with a, a percentage of the ticket price for those types of customers the other thing i would look at is Eventbrite. they charge the Yes, they do charge a percentage of the ticket, but they also give the the event organizers the ability to pass that cost on to the attendees. And that's actually what we do with MicroConf. And it's only a couple of percent, but at the same time, like it raises the ticket price by that amount. And the question you have to ask is, well, as the event organizer, is that something that's going to turn away people? Are they going to not buy a ticket because they have to pay that extra fee? And that's, again, for the event coordinator to decide. But your problem is, how are you charging? For us, like Eventbrite is, I'll say, quote unquote, free in that we're passing those costs on. And then on the other side, we're paying the cost of the pro- the payment processing which we would have to pay regardless so whether Eventbrite handles it or we do it through PayPal or Stripe or whoever that fee has to be paid but our payment to Eventbrite is basically covered by the attendees buying those tickets which makes it free for us which makes it a lot more attractive than like a $97 a month plan or even a $50 a month plan it, coupled with the fact that we also don't run more than a couple of events a year like why should we be paying for that over the course of the entire year, if we're only running events like in a certain time window, I'll say. And that's exactly the problem that I ran into when I was trying to identify, well, how could I build this product, this email follow-up product aimed at event organizers? Event organizers, if they run a lot of events, awesome. They're a good target. But if they don't, then having them pay a monthly fee is not going to work.
0: Yeah, I mean, basically what what Dan and Simon are talking about doing is doing pricing innovation in the space, right? In the event space. And while I think it certainly saved Dan money from a customer perspective, right? He was paying Eventbrite thousands a year. I'm not sure it makes sense to do this from a business perspective. There's a reason that most of these event software companies charge the way they do. And the reason is, as you've laid it out, if your event is free, you don't pay Eventbrite anything if you only sell 20 tickets and they're five bucks each then I believe you pay right two and a half percent of that and if they do the processing they charge you three percent fee payment processing fee or you know we use PayPal and obviously it's whatever it is 2.9 or three percent there or if you sell a hundred thousand dollars worth of tickets in a year then yeah you do pay you know, 2,500 bucks. So I get the, you know, to Eventbrite. So it makes sense from a, a customer perspective of being like, man, I'm paying Eventbrite so much money. But from now that you're on the other side of it and you're running a business, it's like, my thought is like, yes, that's how you want it. I mean, you want it so that the people who are getting a little bit of value out of this system aren't paying that much for it. And it scales up, perfectly linearly with how with how they they do it. So if you sell $100,000 worth of tickets, you're probably making a chunk of money and 2,500 bucks, you know, and we can argue about whether $2,500 is, is too much money, but you definitely are getting quite a bit of value out of a system if you're selling, you know, 100,000 worth. So trying to do pricing innovation is a challenge. I think of the business, is it business model canvas? That's something that if you read that book, do you remember the book?
1: Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, yeah there was a, a whole like worksheet that went with it.
0: Yep. And that talks a lot about trying to do pricing innovation. I don't know that it has practical enough tips to help you sort this out, but I will say that I tried to innovate on pricing in the early days of Drip. And instead of doing per subscriber, you know, just like MailChimp and everybody else is doing, I tried to do new subscribers per month. And it was a bad idea. Not only did it confuse people, but as we started to scale up, we were not growing nearly as fast as we should have. And that's the thing I think you're going to run into is you are going to have, you're going to have people who come and are doing, selling half a million dollars worth of tickets on your, on your system. And they're going to be paying 97, or even if you do tiers, it's not going to be that much they're not going to be paying you, you know, two and a half percent of 500 grand. So I think since people are used to this and it is a lucrative model. If anything, you could try to be the low-cost provider, which I don't think is a terrible idea in this space. I don't know enough about the the whole space. I know that Eventbrite does, yes, it does feel expensive to a lot of people, and it's clunky, so you have those two things, right? They have a ton of features, but they're a little more expensive than everybody wants them to be, and they're arguably quite a bit harder to use, although they have a lot of features. So this is like going after a QuickBooks or an Infusionsoft or, you know, Marketo or, or kind of going after that. So if you make your software infinitely usable and slightly less expensive... But you still keep the same model, maybe you only charge 1.5%. You know, I, I don't know. I would look around at your, I know you have other bootstrap competitors around you, look at what they're doing. That's probably where I would start is doing just a big survey of all the pricing structures of all the event SaaS apps and looking, kind of mapping that out on a big sheet of paper or a mind map or something and trying to think that through. Because I think in the end, you are going to want to be a percentage of revenue is my guess, because otherwise you're going to constantly have this problem trying to think if there's any way around it with tiers, trying to think creatively. And it's like, you could have a free tier where you can't charge for events. And then you could have your $50 a month tier where you go up to a certain amount of ticket sales. In essence, you're kind of taking a percentage, but you're not, you're just having tiers of it. So that that would maybe be the only other thing that I would consider. But man, that just taking one and a half percent, two and a half percent, it's so clean, right? It just It makes your pricing look so clean and it's simple and everybody understands that.
1: And I think the problem that you just kind of alluded to is that depending on the size of the event that you're dealing with, if it's five or 10 people, you might have one price tier. And then if it's 50, you could have another. And whether or not you deal with those, like what's the price point of those? Like if it's $25,000, but they only allow five people in it, like is it a free account? So depending on the value that you're providing to them, that's really what your pricing should be based on. And I think you almost get into this territory of like you have an unlimited number of pricing tiers because like how high could those ticket prices go or what is it that you actually basing it on? Is it a number of attendees or is it ticket price or is it some combination of the two? And once you get into that territory, it gets overly complicated and people don't want to deal with it because they're like this pricing model is too confusing for me. I feel like I'm going to get screwed. So I'm going to go with a competitor because I understand it.
0: So thanks for the question, Dan and Simon. I hope that was helpful. And I definitely wish you guys the best of luck with Events Frame. Our next question is from Alex. And he says, hi again. Thanks for all the great content. I feel like I'm in a bit of a dilemma. I have an idea that I would like to turn into a business. It's for a job site. And I have the requirements more or less hammered out to the point I could have a developer build it. I've recently been in the process of getting quotes from various companies and freelancers to build it, but I'm hesitant to make this jump. Aside from the inherent risk of it just failing, I'm concerned I will spend all my money on the MVP, then quickly run out of money to fund any iterations on the site. I don't know anyone willing to help me build this for free, and I also don't know the first thing about raising money or how to prepare for that. I guess my question is, how would you approach building an MVP in the most affordable way? And one thing I'll throw out before you dive in, Mike, is, yeah, you're not gonna be able to raise money. I mean, maybe for family and friends, but you're not gonna be able to raise money without a a working app these days. It's just kind of table stakes. And although he asked us, how would you approach building an MVP in the most affordable way? I don't know that's the question we should answer. I think the question we should answer is, how do you validate this more before building an MVP? Would you agree?
1: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, that's kind of the next step is like, what is the MVP? Like, what question are you trying to answer? And the question I think you're trying to answer is, how do I know if I should dump this money into this type of product? And I think the answer to that is kind of the same thing that I did with Bluetick, where go to balsamic.com and buy a copy of Balsamic for like 80 bucks. And mock everything up and then go try and sell that to people and see if people are actually interested in buying what it is that you have. And that'll do a couple of different things for you. One is it will help you find the types of people that you need to talk to. And the second thing it'll do is it'll give you enough information to say like, is this something that people would actually pay for? And that's the answer to your question is like, if you can get enough people and find the market for it and, and tap into the a channel of people to talk to, to get them excited about it and find out if they're going to pay for it, then sure, go for it. But if you can't, get past that part. If you can't find the people to talk to, it's never going to work. Like you're not, you're not going to be able to turn it into a working product, regardless of whether you actually have code written or not. That's not the problem. The problem is trying to find those customers and make sure that they're willing to pay for it. Because you, there's obvious concerns here about Alex's voice about, I'm concerned that about making this jump because of the risk of it failing. And that's how you make sure that it's not going to fail.
0: Yep. I would agree with that. I mean, I think that I think the question you need to ask yourself is, how can you validate this before dumping a bunch of money into it and doing as much of that as possible? Sometimes an MVP is not even software, right? We've talked about this in the past. An MVP might be you with, uh, you know, an Excel spreadsheet or a Google spreadsheet, or it might be you manually writing things, you know, taking in a list of keywords someone gives you, manually running an algorithm on them in, in Excel, and then giving back the keywords they're most likely to rank for. I mean, that is... Basically, what I would have done if, if I had built an MVP for Hittail as an example, or any keyword tool, is there a ways to do it without needing to hire anyone to write a line of code? And that's why I mean I, my second book, which is a collection of, of essays, is called "Start Marketing: the Day You Start Coding." But now I think it's like start marketing or at least validating well before you start coding. So with DRIP, I had 11 people who said that they would pay 99 dollars a month for what we were going to build. Before we broke ground on code, I wanted ten. Happened to get eleven. Then Derek started writing code. I know for Blue Tick, you got pre-orders. I mean, that there's a lot of hustle that can happen up front, and it's it's hard work, right? This is the the stuff that well, is anyone going to trust me? You know, who am I? Is anyone going to trust me if I don't have the software after the software? It's, it, no, that that's an excuse. Yes, it would be better if you had all the software and could just start marketing it, but that's not the case. And your concern, I think your concern is is valid that going out and building an MVP it's very, very unlikely that's going to have product market fit. So you are going to have to iterate. And if you don't have the the money, you know, or the, or the time or the skills to iterate on that, then you need to figure out how to get to the point where you feel more confident. And here's the thing, if you try to recruit a developer to build it for free, we've talked about this in the past, no, no developer is going to want to do that. If you go to a developer and you say, hey, I built all these mock-ups, you know, I had 25 phone calls and I got 10 pre-orders for, you know, and they paid for a quarter, three months of service, and they've all committed to, you know, do, assuming it works and does what I say, it's going to be 50 bucks or hundred bucks a month after that. Boom, we're going to be at, you know, a thousand MRR. I mean, yes, that's a lot of hustle and it's a lot of work, but that's how you recruit a co-founder or or at least a developer who, you know, is willing to build it maybe for um, uh, an equity share or something like that. So I like the way you're thinking about it. I'm glad you're hesitant to just dive into the MVP, but I don't think you should look at building an MVP as software in the most affordable way. I think you should look at not automating, of doing stuff manually and think of how can I possibly validate this? So the first step's gonna be customer conversations, then it's gonna be trying to get pre-orders, then it's gonna be doing it manually until the software is built, then it's building a, a crappy software MVP, and then it's doing a better job. and a better, You know, there's a lot of steps between where you are today and basically paying someone to build a, a complete, SaaS app.
1: Yeah. And I think part of this just stems from the, the classic misunderstanding of what an MVP is because MVP has the word product in it. And that's not really what it means because, uh, and I talked about this in my book, you know, the single founder handbook, you know, and I quote like Wikipedia, from there. And it says an MVP is not a minimal product, It is a strategy and process directed toward making and selling a product to customers. And what you have to understand there is that it explicitly calls out an MVP as a process, not as a product. So building a product is not your MVP, like answering a question is what your MVP is. And the first thing you have to start with is, what is my question? And here it's, how do I know that I need to pay people to develop software? And it's, it's all the stuff before that, that Rob just talked about, like, you know, talking to customers and finding out what they really want and whether they're going to pay for it. That's all the stuff that you need to do. So thanks for the question, Alex. I hope that was really helpful. I think that about wraps this up for the day. If you have a question for us, you can email it to questions at or you can send us a voicemail by calling 1-888-801-9690. Our theme music is excerpt for Auto Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsforrestivist.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.